0: Uh, I just want to say before we start, just one second. Uh, obviously, this week has been a very bittersweet, bittersweet week for the family, the Yeshiva Yom family, with the return. It's a bittersweet week with the return of the remains of of Zach Balmil Zichon Oli Brachat, to the Yeshiva, to uh, to Israel. Uh, Zach was a friend of mine personally. We, I was in Yeshiva together with him during the same uh, during the first Lebanon War. Uh, Zach was an American Israeli, and he used to play ball with with us, uh, Americans, when many of the Israelis went to sleep and we would play in the afternoon during the siesta. uh, And he would participate and was very friendly. He had American American roommates and so uh, we think about him very much. And he also used to participate, we used to have a chug uh, in Tanakh um, and about anti-missionary. And uh, he participated also, one of the few Israelis who would participate in it. So uh, we think about him uh, this week. Uh, I just want to say one more second and then I'd like to turn it over to the panel a uh, hundred years ago or 200 years ago uh, some of the greatest challenges to uh, observance and to commitment to Torah were the challenges of Torah and science uh, Torah and archaeology uh, and other things of that nature today I think for I think many people would agree that people have found uh, ways of addressing those questions and many of the most Serious challenges that people find, especially young people, is how to square their ethical and moral, um, deeply held beliefs, <coughs> many of them inherent in the Torah about Selah elokim*, about Ishbechet uh, O Yumat, that a person should be only held responsible for what they do, and other issues uh, which are very deeply rooted in our conception of God as El Emunav Ein Avel. Sadiq v'asharhu, that God is a just and loving and caring God. And at the same time, we find uh, issues, at the same time, we find in Tanakh and then, of course, in Halakha, uh, challenges uh, that we find played out. And these are some of the biggest challenges that serious uh, people find um, in terms of addressing uh, those issues. Today, we are uh, very blessed to have uh, four wonderful educators uh, teaching at different levels uh, of the uh, spectrum. Um, uh, to my left is Ms. Yael Goldfisher, who is uh, the chair of Chumash at the Frisch uh, School. Thank you for... And uh, wonderful to have you. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchak e. Shalom is the chair of the Tanakh department at YULA uh, in uh, L.A. and a uh, very, very well-known uh, Tanakh scholar and educator who... Uh, Really uh, has written some wonderful books as well that are very worthwhile. Everything he's written, it's worthwhile to read. Uh, we have Rav Shlomo Brin, who is the chairman elect. Are you still just chairman elect? You? Mm-hmm. You're getting there. After the election, he'll be there. Okay, <laughs> so uh, on Tuesday. <laughs> so uh, the chairman elect, the mankal of the Yeshivat Harzion, and also a Ram at the yeshiva, and Dr. Shalom Holtz, who is a uh, professor of uh, Bible at Yeshiva University. He's also a boher of the yeshiva as well as uh, Rabbi H. Shalom is also Bogar of So I wanted to start. Let's start with uh, every each uh, each panelist is going to speak for about eight to ten minutes. Uh, we'll start with uh, Rabbi H. Shalom uh, and uh, we'll conclude with Rav Brin. So it'll be Rav H. Shalom, this Goldfisher, Dr. Holtz, and uh, Acharon Acharon Chaviv. Uh, the three panelists who are American will speak in English and Rav Brin will speak in Hebrew. And, if anyone needs a translation, come over to me later. Like <laughs> a
1: um, I guess I lost the coin toss or couldn't defer. <laughs> um, Natty's right that the nature of the questions really has changed. And the way that we teach and that which we have to prepare ourselves is very much geared by the questions that we get. The questions that we got in the 90s aren't the same questions that we're getting now although the, the changes are, are slow changes, but they're perceptible. Um, and I find that when teaching narrative, and I spend a lot of time teaching, say, for Bray Sheet, many different occasions in high school, uh, something that seems to trouble, um, especially, interesting gender issue, but especially in the, in the girls' uh, education, but also troubles the boys to some extent, is the entire social and family structure. Now, normally when you think about challenges to morality in teaching Tanakh, first thing that comes to mind I would assume would be genocide, um, issues of Amalek, Shibat um Irhani Dachat, and Soro Amore. These are the subjects that I think some of my co-panelists are going to pick up on. And I think that this is an area which is often overlooked because we don't normally see it in terms of a morality issue. Um, and it it speaks to a larger problem that we have that I know that many of us are sensitive to, and in the way that we've been educated in Haritsyon and in studying in different classes in Michalad Herzog uh, and from our great teachers, that we've been sensitized to the fact that, as all my students can tell you because i got it tattooed on their brain, is you cannot understand Tanakh if you don't know the world of Tanakh. And if you pretend for a moment that the text that you're reading is a text that was presented to or is oriented towards 2019 in Manhattan or in Beverlywood or even in Alon Shvut, then you're not going to read the text correctly. And without overdoing it and without turning a Tanakh class into an anthropology class, which would be a mistake and would be putting the tafel in the main seat and the ikar behind it, uh, it is important to spend time with them, orienting them towards what life was like in the ancient world. Truth is, even in the classical world, and to some extent in the medieval world, and in some parts of the world even today. Uh, the Probably the most obvious example of this, which is prevalent throughout Tanakh, and the truth is that uh, in our schools, thank God, both the boys and the girls are studying Gemara, and they encounter this in Gemara. We talk about issues of Kiddushayi tanakh the idea that a, a man can betroth his daughter off at age zero, and that she can get married at age eleven or twelve to somebody that she really has no choice about, is certainly an us And Chazal themselves weighed in on the issue, the sugyaat being in the second paragraph of kiddushin. And nonetheless, the fact that it's in there in the law, and that from time to time we hear about vile stories where people actually capitalize on this, um, does give us pause. And it gives us pause both because of, as Nanny mentioned, the issue of El Emunave and Avel and that uh, God's law must be just, one that people are currently wrestling with a lot in, issue of, in the issue of gender identity and things of that, of that sort. Um, this also becomes a big problem for just understanding what kind of a society existed and having to clarify to them that it was a very different society. And that brings us to the issue of the tafel and the ikar again. Because if you spend most of your time outlining what a patriarchal society in which the tribal identity was far more significant than the personal identity, where individualism was really not unheard of, but was not a prime force in, in motivation and in, and in clarifying law. And it's a very interesting read of sociology, which really gives a lot of insight into this, which is actually Rafal Patei's The Arab Mind. And I read it, I suddenly got a whole new clarity and understanding so much about the sugyot, both in contemporary politics, but also in, in Tanakh and the Chazal, about the nature of family and the nature of tribalism. Once you, you do that, then you're able to approach the sugya, both the sugyah in Tanakh and the sugyot in Chazal, but the sugyot in Tanakh with a fresh eye. Uh, as I mentioned, that, could, that should not become the ikar. Um, the Rashbam, to borrow a passage from the Rashbam in his famous comment to, in the introduction to Parshat Fayeshev, where he lambastes the fact that nobody seems to know how to learn pshat anymore. And he, but he introduces it by saying, because we all understand that the main information comes through the Haggadot, yet we've gotten so involved in the Haggadot we've forgotten to learn how, how to learn pshat, and therefore it's my job to, re, to restore us to pshat, even though when he explains it again, even though the Ikara, of course, comes from the Midrashim and the Haggadot. And the Ikarei, not only hamuna, but of course the ikare Halakha. And so therefore, it's important to keep that balance and say, okay, let's remember what the setting that we're talking about is, a setting of a tribal uh, situation, a setting where there was no such thing as high school. There was no such thing as, uh, uh, as adolescence or in terms of the kids. There was no Hevraya Bet or NCSY. You went straight from being somebody's daughter to being somebody's wife to being somebody's mother to being somebody's grandmother to dying, and hopefully in that order. But that was what life was like. Was it better then? Was it worse then? I'm not passing judgment on it. I quietly tell them I'm very happy I live now. But it's important for them to see that. And then when you then take a look at the Suyot, whether they are about the stories of relatively young girls marrying relatively older men or significantly older men, and even without the Midrash and Seder Olam, Rachel and Yaakov seems to be a pretty big age gap. Um, or the sugyotil Hilchatiyot that we have, for instance, in Parshat Kitetzei and a little bit in Parshat Mishpatim, about the status of an Ara Mu'rasa and an Ara relative to a man who is an outsider who could be of any age, who suddenly she, he may, she may choose to end up marrying to this attacker... Uh, and and staying married to him for the rest of life, and he may not divorce. These are all term- norms that are very odd to us and very strange. And as I mentioned, it's important to 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 internalize for them the fact that this is not a text that was given in 2019. Now, how do you how do you mitigate that with the ongoing message that we as mechanchim are always geared to, which is. The Torah speaks to every one of us in a direct and immediate way. And it's the same thing that we do in halacha. The Torah speaks of nizikin, yet the Torah doesn't talk about cars. The Torah speaks in terms that were the mode of nizikin in the era in which the Torah was given. And then it's our job and the job of poskim throughout the generations to take those particular modes and to translate them, to transpose them into the modern idiom. And there, of course, we have sometimes machlokot about how to translate them. In the same way, we have to be able to see what the we have to be able to discover to the best of, uh, of our ability. And, of course, Chazal guides us greatly in that to understand what the underlying values and family values that exist in, the, in Tanakh and then to translate them into a modern family setting. So one of the challenges, again, that I encounter mm-hmm. frequently with the students is challenges of taking a look at the family setting, the tribal setting, the national setting in a sense— but more, more really the family and the tribe, and trying to explain it in terms that make sense for them in, this, in our generation, and yet allow them to take the stories and take the halachot, and understand ways to translate them, if need be, into a modern idiom.
0: Thank you, Rabbi. Shalom. Um,
1: let's go for the sure. shirt. Okay,
2: thank you. At the you. end, if
0: we have time, we'll have some questions. Back and forth.
2: Um, I wanted to speak about teaching morally questionable texts, to high school students specifically about the Avot. Um, and I will cut, cut it down to just to two. Abraham lying to save himself and put Sarah in danger when they went down to Matrine and does it again when they went down to Gerard. And then looking at Sarah abusing Hagar when, um, after she gives Hagar to Abraham um, in order to conceive a child. Um, as a high school teacher, I've been teaching um, for 15 years. I think um, I could probably put both put my students in two very broad um, categories. Um, there are some students who are super quick to point out the flaws in the Avot, especially point out their bad parenting, um, and then they think that abode are very, very flawed individuals um, and really um, have a hard time viewing them as role models. Second type of students assume that the abode acted correct, correctly in all situations, um, and they really think that, um, they feel very uncomfortable ever with pointing out any time that we think that maybe the abode did something that could have been perceived as wrong. Um, And I really think it's a goal of a teacher to, uh, and as a parent and anybody who's involved in uh, teaching children, should be all of us, um, that our goal should be to teach both camps um, the nuance of the situation. Um, For the group that's super quick to judge, um, it's really important for us to show them not always is the Tanakh itself judgmental about their actions. God may not be upset at them for these situations. And very similar to what Echel was saying, if you put it within the ancient Near Eastern context, that also can serve as a way of defending, or at least understanding for what they did. And therefore, the norms of the times may not reflect today's reality. And for the groups that assume the Avot um, never erred, never did anything wrong, I think it's important to show them too, Midrashim and uh, medieval parshanim, and even modern commentaries that are not shy from calling the Avot sometimes that they made mistakes. Um, I think it's very important that we teach our students that the Avot were superhumans, but not superhuman. Um, And we learn from them, and we can learn from them. And we don't need our role models to be perfect in order for us to learn from them. Why is it important to do both? Why is it important to, for the, call the the more bashing student to teach him that the avot, you know, the ways of defending the avot? And why is it important, vice versa, for the Amunapshuta student to show him the complexity of issues and that there are parshanim who will see that these people flawed? I think because both of these students are really um, at risk in terms of their amunah later on in life, or even right now in their lives. The scoffer with his, who, who has little respect for chas, for, for the Avot, if you use them in such a negative light, that's going to affect their religious commitment. They're going to have a hard time connecting, certainly with Zavanie Avraham, Avra Yitzhak, Itzlakei Yakov, hard time connecting with Judaism when these are our patriarchs. But I think the other flip side is also true. The Amun Pshuta student who views the Avot as pristine and no 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 fault, flaws and no and uh, nothing wrong with them, and they're perfect. They view them as Malachim. Well, I think when they become open to more advanced Tanakh learning. Uh, certainly on college campus, I think they're going to feel a lot of things that they were taught were lies. Um, like this happens a lot in high school when, when a student finds out that a midrashic point of view is not found in the text. Very often, the student feels like they've been lied to all their lives. What do you mean these 12 stones become one stone? What do you mean these things aren't found? The Kishana ish is not found in the actual story of the Tanakh. I think it's very important that we teach both students um, that there's value to sometimes defending. <laughs> and having proper defense, but also finding and look, looking at their flaws and still viewing them as heroes and role models, despite and because of their mistakes. So I want to do these two examples, again, very quickly. Abraham putting Sarah in danger. So the first thing I'd point out is that he says, he's saying, they're going to kill me, and you're going to survive. So therefore say, Therefore say, you're my sister. Seemingly, at first glance, it sounds like Avraham is having Sarah put herself at risk of committing adultery to save his own skin. I think for, it's important to point out that this is actually a conflict. Most students have just read the story and they think this is just totally normal. And then you read the Ramban, and Ramban says, this was a big sin. How could Abraham put his wife as a mechshol avon, as a stumbling black person? Abraham did the wrong thing. He should have relied on a miracle. Somchil should He should rely for God to protect him. Um, and uh that uh, argue against the Ramban, who is critical, the Radak would say, we don't believe that you rely on miracles but you have to do whatever humanly possible means you can to protect yourself but that's her doc explaining how Abraham was right to protect himself what about Sarah? Um, and I think there's a beautiful author of Hirsch that works on explaining that Sarah was in danger no matter what in Egypt they, she could have been raped with her husband or without a husband but if Abraham lies and says that she is her husband then he, they can try to court Sarah through the brother, and woo woo him, and therefore get Sarah. And therefore it was a stalling tactic that Abraham had in mind. And I think once you show the students that approach, then Abraham's actions really do seem like they were the best of all the alternatives available to him. So again, you can point out that there are Pashim who are critical, but then show them also sides of defense. Likewise, in the story of um, Sarah abusing Hagar, we're told in the Sukkim, like um, the we're about to have uh, the seder. We talk about um, affliction and suffering. So how could Sarah abuse Hagar? Um, razak and Ramban here both blame Sarah, and they both find fault with her her, her actions. Ramban says, Our our, uh, our matriarch sinned, by with us with this enoi, with this affliction, and even Aram was at fault for letting it happen. And, uh, and Ramban actually says that we are still paying the price of this inoi because the descendants of Yishmael continue to harass us till this day. Radak actually even tries to describe what was the inoi that Sarah was doing to Hagar. And the Radak points out that maybe she was hitting her, maybe she was cursing her, saying mean things to her. And Radak said, "This is certainly not derech Dude, This is not tov beinay hakel. This is not what God would have wanted Sarah Imenu to have acted." So again, both Ramban and, and Radak are not afraid to point out if the Avot did something wrong, if the Yehoshu did something wrong, to point it out for us to learn from their mistakes. They are human, but then to realize at, at the same time where they've grown as well. But a, a more modern approach, which comes to the, to the defense of Sarah, um, I read it from Rabbi Elchanan Samit who, based on the ancient Near East, it compares the text to the Kod of talks about if a man would marry a woman, um, a maidservant, she gets promoted up in rank. But um, if, uh, if the mistress is not okay with that situation, she could demote her and put her back in her place and make her still feel like that shifka, that she, her rank is back to where it was before. And what is Enoi? Enoi is an affliction, but it could be an emotional affliction. If you went, high, you had a higher state, and you're lowered from your higher state to a lower state, you're back to now sleeping in, I don't know, bad quarters, and you, ha- you were sleeping in, I don't know, the Hilton, you know, that that's an ewit to somebody, and he tries to explain that. It doesn't have to say that Sarah was outside beating her to death, but 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 rather demoted her because she took a position too high. Um, I think in general, so I'm going to skip the Yaakov and, uh, Yaakov and Asa birthright story, but I think in general it's really important that... Um, on one hand, my students often say after learning any topic, why do there have to be so many different opinions? Why can't there just be one answer to any question we ask? So my answer is usually, this is the beauty of the Torah. The beauty of the Torah is that it can be explained in multiple generations and each reader can feel like it connects them. So also quote from that famous Rashbam in Parsha of The Rashbam points out, shim yom, that there are new interpretations being created every single day. If that's the case, then there have to be multiple, multiple interpretations because every single person can create their own interpretation. And... Um, we need to bring our Tanakh study into our, therefore, worldview, into our interpretation. It's only natural to see the world of Tanakh through our own prisms. Rashbam is very famous for using his Zarah Eretz approach, which is not being nice, but looking at the reality of his time and using his reality to interpret the psukim. We're supposed to be doing the same thing, but at the same time, we want to connect with it from our human and moral perspectives today, but we have to realize, Zareb Echolim saying, that the Torah is, was written to, to a generation That is different than our own generation. And although its messages are eternal, we have to sometimes realize that we can't be judging all the characters from our sense of morality for today. And therefore, our job as students of Tanakh is to study the Tanakh with respect for the Avot and Yimahot as the foundations of our relationship with God, to learn from their great stories, and we learn from where they may have erred as well. We walk a very fine line between hero worship and leader bashing. But from this fine line, we gain important lessons and rich approaches to our Avot, Yimahot, and religion as a whole.
0: Thank you, Dr. Holtz. Yeah, so we've uh, mentioned a few times already ancient Near Eastern literature, and Dr. Okay. Holtz is certainly an expert in that area. Right.
3: Um, thank you for the invitation. I'm going to resist the urge to sit, spend the next ten minutes parsing the prompt. Uh, of what is what is morally uh, <laughs> difficult, and well, you know, in our day and age, uh, um, as I if, actually, if
0: our teacher was we're here, here we're not with you, I,
3: right? Exactly. That hey, would he be would have done absurd. that. Yeah. I had a whole two paragraphs eliminated. Um Absolutely. So I encapsulate the subject uh, um, using the shorthand Sefer Devarim and the Bamiyan Buddhas uh, to bring everyone up to speed. For those of you who are a little bit uh, on the younger side, uh, the Buddhas of Bamiyan were two giant statues, uh, each well over a hundred feet tall, that were uh, that survived for nearly 1,500 years uh, until they were obliterated by the Taliban in 2001. Uh, literally obliterated. I mean, they did a or helicopters involved. It was a very serious thing, uh, and the explicit motive for this was extreme Islamic iconoclasm. Right. Uh, almost as soon as the explosions were broadcast worldwide, myself, and then students, and later still, even one of my children's teachers, uh, raised the obvious connection to the very mute bet. Right. To put it extremely starkly, are the Taliban doing what Sefer Devarim asks its audience to do? In the same vein, we can find striking parallels that have been already mentioned here between actions performed by uh, organizations that we would uh, completely dissociate ourselves from, uh, such as stoning as a form of punishment for idolatry but for child recalcitrance, and uh, for sexual infidelity, and of course, the modern wholesale ent- efforts to eliminate ethnicities mm-hmm. by the Taliban or elsewhere uh, raises chilling parallels to laws of the Cherem and malek as Rabbi Shalom already said. Uh, and this is just Parshat Ki Teitzei. We're sticking. We're stig- we're stig- we're stig- <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we can see, uh, but if we went to say you know, Parshat Khanan, Parshat Ki Teitzei, Sefer and all of these examples, and I guess we could multiply them, expose the tension between my own revulsion and my reverence for the Torah, both of which I hope I share with others in the room. So I'll outline three avenues along which I proceed uh, when confronting this problem of Sefer and Bamiyan Buddhas. Approach number one is Torah Shebel Pet to the rescue. Approach number two, context, to the rescue. Approach number three, revulsion, to the rescue. And I deliberate with my use of the phrase, to the rescue, uh, which is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, right? Uh, because this reflects my sense that sometimes the moral problems we or our students raise are, are better than the solutions we can give. <clears throat> our answers may be perceived as apologizing for rather than acknowledging the difficulties with all the negative consequences that follow from that. So the approach of Tarasha Bel to the rescue invokes Chazal to correct the obvious difficulties. And here I believe we are following Maran Haram Zatzal who insisted, as best as I remember, and I don't have this in writing anywhere, but I certainly yeah. remember hearing it, that we cannot read Torah Shabbichtav without the Torah Shabbait overlay. We remind ourselves, for example, that Chazal, in effect, if not necessarily in, in intention, ended many of the destructive mandates of Sefer Devarim by introducing, for example, uncertainty about ethnicities, um, and so similarly, the procedural steps that were created or you know uh, recorded by Chazal to prevent summary executions by stoning. In the end, we are rabbinic Jews, and so the long history of halacha can serve us uh, when we come to grips with an otherwise harsh text. Similarly, context, and we've already heard some of that over here, the modern recovery of culture as contemporary with the Tanakh allows us to understand the text the way B'nai Israel might have. Here, we might work along the lines of Moshe Greenberg's famous study of the postulates of biblical criminal law. We might, for instance, consider the law of Ben Sorero More in the context of ancient family structures. There's an excellent article on that in one of the Mitocha Ohel volumes at Yeshiva University. When we do so, we see that in neighboring cultures, and even in some of the narratives in the Tanakh, and I think what, um, uh, so think of Yehudah the Tanakh as the example, that fathers have virtually unlimited power over their children. Uh, the Torah places limits on the father's power by legislating a procedure. Uh, so the father cannot simply eliminate a problem child, by requiring the mother's participation, and by involving the community in the adjudicatory process. Now, both of these approaches, Torah she and and uh, context to the rescue, can even lead to the same conclusions from different directions. So Greenberg himself saw the Torah's approach of the death, to the death penalty as the first step towards what would be, uh, according to him, its ultimate effective elimination by Chazal through all the procedural steps of Both of those approaches work by creating distance between us and the Tanakh. They rescue uh, by having us say in one way or another, that was then, this is now. On the other hand, uh, the third approach, revulsion to the rescue, makes the claim that the text's very purpose is to provoke our moral revulsion. Rather than create distance, it has us identify with the text by positing that the text's purpose is, in fact, to teach us through a negative example. So my colleague Aaron Kohler, who is also a Bulgaria Shiva, has adopted this approach to Yecheskel uh, arguing that the famously promiscuous Yerushalayim is really the victim of an abusive God. Uh, he does an amazing job of studying victims' uh, with, victims of various violent crimes and how the profile of Yerushalayim actually matches quite nicely. And his brother is a psychologist who helped him with that. Uh, The prophecy asks us, and here I'm quoting, to take the side of Yerushalayim against the monstrous deity. And then again, he teaches us that Yerushalayim is obligated to be loyal to God no matter how degrading that relationship becomes. The key point here is that the relationship is meant to be degrading. You're supposed to take the side of Yerushalayim against God. Now, I would extend this to the entire Sefer Shoftim, which pretty much indicts everything that's going on there uh, from the nation's behavior or through the actions of its saviors in the absence of a king. So the very fact that I've suggested three approaches means that there is no magic bullet. There's no one answer. Uh, while revulsion is a solution in some places, I don't think it works in Sefer Divari. Uh, the other approaches can just as easily raise problems as they solve them. Certainly true for Tarasha Bel Pez was mentioned here already. Uh, context can help, but here we have to also be honest to the sources. Uh, and as an, the Assyriologist in me doesn't isn't always comfortable reading those sources through a biblical lens. Uh, the example of the elevation of, this, of the wife and so on and so forth was actually a matter of dispute uh, over the Assyriology. The, you know, Rav, Rav probably got the latest word on that, but the point is that there was, for a while, there were some wild theories out there that uh, saw everything through the lens of a seriology. It turns out that the text was broken in the wrong place. Everything had been restored. It was, it was all somebody's imagination, pretty much. Right? So um, we have to be careful with that kind of thing. Um, so I'll conclude then by affirming that it's entirely valid, religiously and academically, to view the Tanakh through the lens of our own sensibilities. Academically, it's simple. The Tanakh is a repository of ancient ideas that, to one extent or another, continue to inspire, but not in every aspect. Uh, I could paraphrase here. I think it's Bertrand Russell. Okay. Actually, sometimes you do have to be a triangle, or you don't have to be a triangle, whatever it is. Uh, religiously, while we're asked to submit to Varashem, I don't believe that this means denying that we find certain aspects morally difficult. Acknowledging the difficulty is far healthier, certainly. Those of us who not only study for ourselves, but also teach Torah Shaviv have to encourage students' moral questions. The risks are there, clearly. Uh, you know, you have the, on either side, this gold picture outline. But it's far riskier to spiritual health, in my opinion, to quash inquiry by insisting that there's nothing morally problematic. I'm
0: done. <laughs> Thank you. Arav <laughs> green
4: תודה רבה. אחרון אחרון חביב נחמד מאוד, אבל אחרי ששלושה דיברו כבר מה יש לי להעושים. אני החל גדול מהדברים שנאמרו כאן. אני כתבתי לעצמי לומר כאן לא רוצה לחזור. אולי אני אדגיש 2-3 נקודות. כשאנחנו עוסקים, אני אתחיל מהבעיה שכבר ידידי יצחקת שלום הציג. הבעיה שלנו שאנחנו מצד, מצד אחד רוצים ללמד תנ״ך ולקרוא את התנ״ך ולקבל מהתנ״ך את המסרים שהתנ״ך רוצה להפגיש אותנו איתם כמסרים שמיטיבים אותנו. אנחנו מזדהים עם גיבורי התנ״ך ואנחנו רוצים ללמוד מדרכיהם עם המעשהם. מצד שני יש יש דונים שכאשר לנו ללמוד מהם במושגים שלנו. אחד הפתרונות הוא שאנחנו צריכים להבין, וזה גם כאן נאמר שאנחנו צריכים לקרוא את הת... של התנך והפעולות של אבותינו בתנך נעשו לפי המושגים שלהם לא לפי המושגים שלנו והזמנים השתנו אבל מצד שני אתה תסביר כל הזמן שהתנך הוא לפי המושגים שלהם ולא המושגים שלנו אז מה זה בוודאי חלק, זה חלק מן הבעיה שמצד אחד אתה רוצה שהתנך יהיה התנך, הקריאה בתנך, הבנת התנך תוסיף לנו אהבת השם וירת שמיים ומוסר מצד שני אתה אומר זה מתאים לתקופות קדומות שאנחנו בהם כבר אנחנו אה, התקדמנו עם התקופות האלה ובמן יש דברים שהיום לא שייך כמו למשר עבדים התנך מדבר על עבדים אז אם אם אנחנו מבינים שבתקופת התנך בתקופות קדומות היו עבדים ונקרא את התנך על רקע התקופות הקדומות, אז אנחנו נראה שהתנך מעיטיב עם העבדים הוא על העבדים אחרי שש שנים יצא לחופשי חינם, כי תקנה עבד עברי גם גם בעמה עברייה אנחנו רואים את בין ספר שמות לספר דברים וקבר נכתב על כך לאום התקופות שלהם, אז התנך זה ספר, ידגיש את העניין המוסרי בצורה מאוד מאוד חזקה. התקופה שלנו, אנחנו מתקשים להבין את העניין של העבדים, אבל למה לנו רק רק לפני 150 שנה עוד היו עבדים כאן בארצות הברית, לא בישראל, אבל בארצות הברית, <laughs> היו עבדים. עד 1865 נדמה לי. 1865, היו עבדים בארצות הברית. אז, אבל, אז, אז אז ברור שהיום אין עבדים, אבל התנך דיבר לכל התקופות. אנחנו צריכים להבין את זה, וזה קצת מורכב. לכן אני רוצה אה, אה, לומר כאן, אולי להצביע לחדד שני דברים. אה, קודם כל, אנחנו אף לא נלמד תנך, כמו שאתה התגשת, מאוד יפה, בלי תורה שבעל פה. אנחנו, ברוך השם, יש לנו תורה שבכתב, ויש לנו תורה שבעל פה. תורה שבעל פה, אנחנו אה, 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 מבינים שאם אה, אנחנו, אני כבר לא אומר, אה, בן סלום הוא מורה, לפי כמה דעות בחזל, לא haya ולא נבראה. עיר הנידה לא haya ולא נבראה. עין תחת עין זה לא עין תחת עין, זה ממון, זה לא גוף. יש לנו תורה שבעל יש לנו מסורת, יש לנו מסורת לא רק של חזל, שאחרי חזל, אפילו אחרי חזל, ניקח לפי התנך, גם לפי חזל, יש משפחה עם שתי נשים, בעל ושתי נשים, אולי אפילו יותר. בגמיה, מולטיגמיה, אנחנו היום חיים אחרת. אנחנו חיים, יש איסור לשאת שתי נשים, אז נכון, אחרי חזל. אבל, אם, אבל, אבל אנחנו, התורה שלנו היא לא, היא, היא, היא לא פונדמנטליסטית בהומן הזה. זה לא, אני, יצא לי כמה פעמים להיות עם מוסלמים, אצלהם מה שכתוב בקוראן, אז זה 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 מילה האחרונה. אצלנו יש פרשנויות, יש יש הלכות, יש מנהגים, והם מעצבים את החיים שלנו. אנחנו צריכים להסתכל על זה בצורה הרבה יותר רחבה, ואנחנו אומרים, כפי שאנחנו אומרים בברכת התורה, שנתן לנו תורת אמת זה תורה שבכתב וחיי עולם נתן בתוכנו, זו תורה שבעל פה, זה חיי שאנחנו אנחנו איתה חיים ומכוונים את החיים שלנו ולכן אי אפשר לנתק את תורה שבכתב מתורה שבעל פה וכמובן זה לא אומר שלא צריך להסתכל על הפשט, התנך אבל לא לחשוש משום שאנחנו נמצאים היום באווירה של מסורת שתורה שבאלת דבר נוסף מה שאני רוצה לומר נכון יש כמה בעיות שקשה לנו, לנו להסביר גם גם מפרשים, אבן עזרה שואל איך יעקב אבינו נעשה שתי אחיות איסור מפורש בתורה רמבן שואל איסור מפורש בתורה לעשות שתי אחיות וישאי אל אחותה, לא תקרא איך, 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 יעקב אבין הוא נשא שתי אחיות. אז היא בן עזר אומר, זה לא תויבה כל כך גדולה. זה לא איסור כזה חמור. רמבן אומר, באמת, בארץ ישראל, כשיעקב אבין בא לארץ ישראל, בארץ ישראל הזה. אז מה شنכון יש לנו כמה בייות בתנך אבל לא צריך להסתקל רק על הבייות כי יש בתנך המון המון דברים נפלאים המון 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 דברים נפלאים כשמודים תנך לא צריך למום רק את הבייות של התנך איזה תנך יש לנו איך אברהם אבינו מדברים על שוכות מסריות איך אברהם אבינו נלחם בין אחיו ולוט עושה מלחמה איך משה רבנו مستكن وورגת المصريه איך יעקב אבין הוא נוזף בשימון ב- ולוי. אז אני אמנם פעם הייתי בזני, אני פה רוצה לספר, מותר לי לספר איזה סיפור, פעם אחת הייתי בזה בר מצווה, סליחה, ברית מילה של נכת של חבר שלי, ודיבר שם הצד השני, הסבא השני, והוא אמר שהוא כל שנה עושה קידוש בפרשת וישלח לכבוד שימון ולוי. Umer, They are my cup of tea. I'm sending them kudos for my friend, שלי הוא נתן שם הנאום. מה, אתה לא קראת? אני כמעט חשבתי שהוא הולך להסתכסך עם שלו. והוא אמר לו, מה, אתה לא לא קראת פרשת וייחי? מה יעקב אומר? כלי חמאס מכורתם, ועוד לפני כן יעקב אומר, אחרתם אותי לאבישנו ביושבי הארץ. זאת אנחנו רואים את המוסר של האבות. אז יש... יש בעיות, אז אוקיי, יש בעיות. לא כל דבר אנחנו מבינים. לא כל דבר אנחנו מבינים, ואנחנו צריכים להכיר בכך שיש דברים שגם לא נבין. עכשיו אני מותר לתת ציטט את, 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 את המיטל, אני גם את מורי חמי, זה גם פרה אדומה, שבת ודינים. אז אמר, מה המודל הזה, הפרדיגמה הזאת של שבת, פרה פרה ודינים? שבת זה בן אדם למקום, דינים זה בן אדם לחברו. שבת זה דבר שמבינים. יום מנוחה, כל העולם קנה, יום מנוחה. דינים זה צורך לנהל חברה, מובן. פרה אדומה, מה שייך פרה אדומה? שיש דבר שלא מבינים. חלק מהתורה מה... שלנו היא גם תורה שלא כל דבר אנחנו מבינים. כשיבוא המשיח נבין הרבה יותר ונבין הכל. לא כל דבר, לא הרמב״ם אומר בטעמי מצוות שאנחנו מבינים את עיקרי המצוות ואין טעם לחפש את פרטי המצוות. לא כל הראשונים מסכימים עם הרמב״ם. אבל לא נבין כל דבר. אבל יש לנו כל כך הרבה דברים לקבל מהם השראה, מהתנך. כי דעתים למה אשר את צוות בנה ואת ביתו אחריו, ושמרו את דרך השם לעשות, לעשות צדקה ומשפט. זה אברהם אבינו. שיחניס עורכים, ושזה מלא. אין לנו כל כך בעיה כמחנכים. לפעמים, אם אנחנו שואלים אותנו, אז גם יכולים להגיד לתלמידים, תראו, אנחנו לא כל כך מבינים זה. זה כמה מפרשים אומרים שזה היה חטא, או למצוא תירוץ מקומי של uh, הרב סמט, שזה עינוי, זה לא ממש עינוי, זה עינוי. אז זה, זה, זה בסדר, אבל צריך לראות את היופי, את המוסר שיש בתנך, שהוא מלא מאוד מאוד. וגם... אה, אני רוצה לומר כאן דבר אחרון אולי. שזה לא רק שאנחנו לא מבינים. אנחנו, התורה שלנו היא קדושה. והמוסר בתורה הוא מוסר אלוקי. אנחנו מדברים על מוסר אנושי. יש, למדנו מרבותינו, שיש ערך למוסר אנושי שלא כתוב בתורה ולא כתוב בהלכה. בפרקים הראשונים של הספר החשוב, מוסר מוסר אביב, יש שם התייחסות מפורשת לעניין הזה, שם יותר מבחינה הלכתית. אבל יש צריך להבין שיש גם מוסר אלוקי. אנחנו רוצים, ככל האפשר, שהמוסר אנושי שאנחנו מאמינים בו, אנחנו יכולים לחיות לפיו, יתאים עם המוסר האלוקי. אבל זה לא, לא תמיד. ואולי יש דברים שאנחנו לא מבינים להם. אולי יש דברים שהם נשגבים מאיתנו. אני אסיים בדוגמה אחת ש אנחנו צריכים לвидו מוסר הלוקי יש זה לא תמיד לfi כי אנחנו מוסר אנושי זה לפי אנחנו כאן זה זה, רלטיביזם, זה זמני מוסר אלוקי, זה מוסר אובייקטיבי אנחנו סובייקטיבי. יש יתרון לא אובייקטיבי על דוגמה ממזר מה השם מה השם הממזר? האם זה מוסרי שממזר לא יכול להתחתר? זה בעיה. אנחנו, אנחנו אומרים מצד אחד ממזר תלמית חכם קודם לכהן גדול עם הארץ. שני, באמת ממזר לא יכול לבוא בקרל השם. זה, זה אוי ואי נועה. אז מנסים להתיר. אבל, אבל רוצה על מוסד המשפחה, כמוסד קדוש, אז יש גם פרטים שסובלים, יש כללים ויש פרטים, וכשאתה שואלת שאלות מוסריות, היום בעיקר שואלים שאלות מוסריות על הפרט, על ה-individual. אבל <coughs> אנחנו צריכים להבין שיש שאלות מוסריות שלא נוגעות רק לפרט. הפרט, אלא הבנת הכלל, היחידה הגדולה, המשפחה, הקהילה, ה- האומה, the nation, the the Jewish people, so, in <coughs> כל הבעיות שיש ויש בעיות, אני חושב שללמד תנך זה זכות גדולה, ויש כל כך אור בתנך, וכל כך מוסר בתנך. תראו איך יעקב אבינו, אחד הדברים אני רוצה לצטט את הרב ליכטנשטיין, מה זה מוסר עבודה שהיה, שאמר הרמב״ן, הרמב״ן צטט את יעקב אבינו זכיר. בלכות זכירות, בכל כוחי את אביכם. יעקב, את מי הוא עבד? את לבן, זה מוסר, זה לא so, we common and common and common. So um we're
0: going to take some questions. I would just uh, take the prerogative of the chair. That's, that's what happens when you have a chair, so you get to do that. So I would just, uh, I, I want to thank all the panelists for everything that they said. And uh just wanted to comment two things. First, on the the last comment that Rav Rin made, Chazal themselves were conflicted, because, yes, it's true, there's no doubt that you, with Mamzer, you gain the the protection of the family at the cost of the individual, but Chazal understood that cost, and they said, Dim'ata that they recognized that there's a, uh, that that's the Mamzer who suffers, and they themselves were conflicted about that. I also want to just raise, many people have mentioned... Uh, Torah Shabal Peh, in its interaction with Torah uh, biktav everybody quoted rav Amital, so quote rav Amital also rav Tal often would say that i don't know if he was quoting rav cook or he was quoting somebody else but he said Torah biktav it's like the father comes yeah. home and gets angry at the at the kid and goes ra 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 you're going this is this is going to happen mot and mock right? and the mother comes home and says you know whatever this is what's going to happen and you know <laughs> it kind of balances out that thing. I don't know if he was quoting Ruff Cook. And the same thing, very often we feel that. You know, we talk about uh, Dr. Schatz is here. We all remember there was a, an orthodox forum many years ago. Rabbi Lamb, he should live and be well, uh, wrote a, an, a, a piece about uh, Amalek and the and genocide and things, and he talked about an evolving morality. Then they censored it in the final uh, version, and they changed the word from evolving to something else. I don't remember. Exactly. Right. So... But when we talk about that, like we often take pride in the ketubah in halacha. The ketubah was such a progress in terms of protecting the woman that she couldn't just be thrown out. Because in the Torah, it's bal korcha. you could throw out the woman. And Chazal were recognized. The challenge that we sometimes get with our students, and it's a real challenge, is okay. That's very nice. Two thousand years ago, you know, what are we doing today? Is is halacha able to continue? If the megamah is a Megama in that way, what do we do? So that's one of the challenges when you go down that road yeah. of saying, Torah Shevaal solves all the problems, but, you know, so where do we stop? You know, why can't we solve the Aguna problem? Why can't we solve serious kids? Why can't we solve this problem? Again, so we'll say we don't have a Sanhedrin. Okay, so those are structural problems, but it's just an issue that we struggle with when we go down that road. I want to open up until we get stopped for some questions. Yes, sir.
5: Um, so, and then... Yeah. Sorry. Um, We've all been um, discussing um, ways to deal with morally problematic content in Tanakh. And I have a question that's mostly directed at the high school educators. A lot of the way the question is phrased today, especially amongst um, university students and high school students, is it's not purely a question of morally challenging content. It's a question of morally challenging content plus a lack of voice. So there's morally regressive content about women, plus the fact that there's a lack of voice of women, both in the Tanakh and in the Holocaust discourse. It's about morally regressive content in LGBTQ areas, plus a lack of voice um, of LGBTQ people, both in Tanakh and the Holocaust discourse, and also the perceived uh, barriers of entry of those people into adding their voices into the discourse. So a lot of the solutions that you've raised have dealt very strongly or very specifically with how to deal with these challenges of content, both by recognizing that it's old, it represents a a society from the past, there is positive content that was created over time. But how specifically do you deal or do you handle these challenges of lack of voice or morally regressive content plus a lack of voice? We'll take a few
0: questions and then we'll... uh, I
2: guess my question sort of... It's to his, and, and in the sense that to, the, to those teaching high school students, how tolerant are your students of the answers that you are giving them? Because I wasn't tolerant of those answers four years ago, and I surely am not tolerant of them now. You know. Um, but you're still here. Right. I am <laughs> still committed, yes, and he knows. But they didn't help me four years ago, and they surely those answers are not helping me now. You know, so that's, that's wha- we'll
0: take one, was- one more question. If anybody has any other questions, or else we'll throw it open to the <coughs> panel. Okay. Oh, yeah. Throw maybe
1: on. a little bit of the flip side, not exactly. So we're all talking about we're having
0: difficulty with our 2019 lenses viewing the Tanakh. Perhaps I don't think it's been addressed exactly. Maybe our lenses that we're viewing today, maybe they're clouded. Maybe they're wrong. It's I right. you can't necessarily defend everything, but. Right. The, the, the perhaps that, the direction... R- Ruff Ruff was Brin <coughs> was raising that about an objective morality versus a, a transitory morality. Right. So any of the uh, panelists would like to take a stab at I have
1: in? to plead ignorance when it comes to your question because I have not encountered... Um, and I've been teaching high school for about 30 years, um, and I have not yet encountered students who either in the class form or privately... Raises issues of voice, or of inclusion. Now, that does not at all speak to the range of high schools that exist. So I I, I don't know how to respond to that. I will echo a piece, although I, I disagree with what Rav said about, let's look at all the beautiful things that are there, because the reality is that we're presenting Tanakh as Dvar Hashem and Torah Hashem which means that everything should be perfect. Everything should be available to criticism and then be able to withstand that criticism. So it's not going to suffice to say, well, 90% of the things there are praiseworthy. we got to deal with the other 10%. On the other hand, I don't think that we have a mitzvah to raise problems that the students don't raise unless we see that they are, like Yael said, in the other side, that they are so, um, what the word would be?
2: That?
1: Yeah, but in naive English. So naive, sort of religiously naive, as to say that there's there's no room for us to ask, then you got to poke a little bit. But if they are already critical thinkers, I don't think that I have a for to raise more issues for them, and so therefore I just I really haven't encountered that. I apologize. All right, I'm not sure which answers you got those years ago that well, haven't I, helped I you. The,
2: the question that he's addressing, maybe somebody else's account. I find that hard that you have not encountered mm-hmm. issues I, in, a, I, in a classroom I got in, which, in which they raise it. Women's yeah, we have, yeah, yeah, well,
0: How I much mean, time do we have? So we'll just let yeah, well, let Ms. I, Goldfisher I respond. Definitely yeah. raise
2: the women issue in Tanakh, um, and um, I feel the way to answer that question is to first of all explore the text. There are women in Tanakh in, in the story. Um, do they always have a voice? Do we always hear from their perspective? No. But that's where I think that's where we should do close reading of the text and try to give them a voice through the commentaries, through our own lenses, and doing, you know, close reading the text to try to find out what was her perspective on the story. Um, I think that's, that's our job as a modern Tanakh learner today. Um, and I think was where, wherever I can to give a female voice to characters and to, and to bring in more characters, women, women characters, I spent a lot of time. Like my whole unit about Moshe Rabinu becoming Mo was all about the women who made Mo Sharbenu, Moshe Sharbenu, Moshe Yochavet, Miriam. They taught him empathy, and therefore he became an empathetic person. I think it's my job as a Tanakh teacher to, to put the women on the stage also in the in the stories and really give them a lot of prominence. Once a student said to me years ago, I quote was and a student said to me, "My father told me never to listen to anything a woman has to say." He said in my class, and I said, "Well, you've got a lot to learn." How is she in your class? class. <laughs> in my class. I quoted was. So I, f- I really feel very hard to tell my really students you Tanakh class, you don't need to be dead, white, or male, but you could be a living woman and have so much to contribute to Tanakh and to bring voices to the women at Tanakh as well.
0: I want to thank no, our no, panel. No, no, no. Oh,
4: <laughs> that's Yoel. Uh, one minute, please. <laughs> uh, <don't> uh, wanna- <laughs> I disagree with your comment about me. <laughs> <laughs> And for you, I just want to add that until 1920, women could not vote here in the states.
1: That's right. That's two dates. That's 1920 <laughs> and 1865. Think about. It. Want to thank all our panelists.